0: Amen. 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 10. We left off in the middle of the chapter. We'll be picking up in verse 16. The Christians in the city of Corinth had a sincere desire to please God in their behavior and in their lifestyle. The challenge that they had is that they were living in an extremely godless and God-hostile culture, much superstition. But all of that superstition pointed to the sins of the flesh and not to the worship of a holy God. And so the Christians in that city found themselves in a little bit of a quandary. And that was that they wanted to do what was right, but they had the influence of everything that was wrong constantly pressing in against them. And there were certain things in that setting that were cultural norms, things that they Partook of as a people in Corinth on a consistent and regular basis, that now these Christians faced themselves with the challenge of the question of whether or not those things were acceptable to God or not. And so they wrote Paul in a letter and they asked him concerning just one of these issues. And that issue was concerning meat that was sold in a market where that meat had been offered in the Temple of Idols. But because of that, it was sold for much cheaper than meat that you would buy at a regular market. And so it was a good bargain, but the message that would be sent or the condoning of the activities that caused that meat to be provided at that rate were in question. And so the Corinthians wanted to know, is it acceptable before God... For us to save money buying temple shamble or shamble temple meat. Or should we abstain from it? And, and in what it represents to them and also to us is the gray areas of life. How do we navigate through things when we don't know what's acceptable before the Lord? There is no scripture or verse that says that this thing or this behavior is right or wrong. But yet there might be a question of whether it is or it isn't. How do we navigate through those things? And so the Apostle Paul is taking three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, to address that issue that they faced and that we also faced, because the world hasn't really changed much. And especially in the United States of America, we live in a culture that is godless and becoming increasingly God-hostile. So how do we do the same thing? How do we navigate in areas where we don't know exactly what is right and what is wrong? So Paul has written in his answer and he's basically um, given them three things, three thoughts to ponder thus far. He's told them, first of all, that they are absolutely free in Jesus Christ, that they are free both to do and they're free not to do whatever they want. Think about that because that's important. It isn't just that they were free to do, they were also free not to do. But in that freedom, Paul writes to them that there are certain consequences that can still be linked to the actions and activities of their lives. One of those consequences is that it's possible for them to stumble a weaker brother, someone who doesn't have their footing yet in the things of the faith, or their roots really set in Christ, and by partaking in something that is questionable in behavior, though they are free to do it, there's the potential that they might uproot or stumble a brother who doesn't have faith as strong as theirs. Another consequence that he's told them, associated with gray areas, is that there's the potential in partaking of questionable things, of losing our vision for what life in the Lord is really all about, and thus becoming unfruitful and ineffective with what God has given to us, the opportunity and the time and the life that we have as Christians. He says that's a very real possibility. You can lose vision and you be, can become ineffective. And then the third consequence, which we explored last week, is that there's the potential, being in the wrong side of these issues, of actually being disqualified. Not necessarily losing your salvation, but of standing before Jesus one day and having Him declare over your life that you lost the race that was set before you because the world and the flesh and the devil were stronger and faster than you. And thus you're maybe saved because that's by grace through faith, nothing that we could do or preserve or earn or keep of ourselves. But we can enter into an eternity without any crown, without anything to show for it, that we've completely wasted our life because we've been disqualified due to our carnality and our sinfulness. And so what he says, essentially, is that gray areas can be a gateway to a fruitless and wasted life. And so he warns them concerning those types of things. Now, you say, then why is it that there would be so many gray things in life, why wouldn't God just spell out exactly what we're supposed to do and comprehensively give us a list of do's and don'ts, and then we would always be safe because we could just set ourselves on the right side of everything? The reason why God doesn't do that is because what that would allow is for us to lead a Christian life completely void of any relationship with God at all. We would simply look it up in the book, what am I supposed to do here? And we would adjust our lives accordingly. Oh, yes, of course, and we would find loopholes because that's what man does. But we would do all of that without any relationship with God at all. And thus we would miss the entire point of why God made man in the first place. He made us and then he saved us so that we would be in a relationship with him. That's what he desires. And so what the gray areas of life do for you and I is that they give us opportunity to relate to God and talk to God and hear from God concerning where he would have us stand in relationship to those things in a way that pleases him and blesses us. And that's the desire of God's heart for every one of us. And thus he has ordained that there be gray areas in our life. We must seek him, And we must prove the things that are acceptable, like Paul said to the Ephesians. Or prove all things, like Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And every single one of us faces gray areas in our life every single day. Not just in behavioral things, like, you know, is it okay to smoke? Or is it okay to drink? Or is it okay to dance? Or how should we spend our money? But we face it in so many things, decisions that come across our plate every day. Do I take this job or not? How do I spend my time and what's a good way for me to do it? What should I do with some of the things I have from my old life? Perhaps a DVD collection or a music collection of things that are no longer fruitful and effective. Do I sell it? Do I burn it? it, We have to seek God for so many things on a daily basis and God wants it to be that way. Now, not one of us here, I hope, if you're in the Lord, wants to stumble another brother through the things that we do, nor do we want to lead fruitless lives. And I'm certain that none of us here want to be disqualified to hear God say, you failed. You didn't do what I asked. You didn't walk with me. None of us want to hear those things. So is there an answer? How can we navigate through the gray areas in our lives? Well, as Paul concludes now in the remainder of chapter 10, having laid before us the warnings, the potential pitfalls that can happen, what he gives us in the remainder of the chapter now are some guidelines for you and I as we seek to navigate through these things, seeking God, what do you want for my life? And so seven things essentially that the Apostle Paul gives to us now in these closing verses to help us to evaluate what the will of God is for us individually when it's not spelled out absolutely clearly it begins in verse 16 and the first one if you're taking notes uh, the first guideline for gray that paul gives to us is don't compromise singular devotion to god never compromise being singularly set apart for god alone notice what he writes in verse 16 he says the cup of blessing which we bless Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, speaking of the ordinance of communion that was given to us by Jesus himself, that signifies his death and resurrection and our invitation to be beneficiaries of that sacrifice? He says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That is that when we partake of that bread, not only are we receiving Christ symbolically and letting his life become assimilated with us, but we also are being assimilated with one another. We're a part of his body. And thus, if all of us are partaking of the same loaf, then all of us are essentially becoming one. He says, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So he's saying that when we partake of the sacrifice of Christ, which is the sacrifice of the New Testament Christian, we are becoming one with each other and we're becoming one with God. We're unified with him. There's a communion. And then he draws the Old Testament parallel to prove his point in verse 18. He says, behold, Israel after the flesh, the Old Testament expression of God's work within the world. He says, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In other words, when they would offer their lamb to God and the priest would take it and then burn it, what he would do is he would return a portion of the meat back to the worshiper and the worshiper would then eat of that meat and he was symbolically sharing a meal with God. He was becoming one with God, communing through that sacrifice. And that's what's happening in the communion of the New Testament as it was in the sacrifice of the Old Testament. So what's your point, Paul? He goes on in verse 19. He says, what say I then that the idol is anything? That is the idol to which the meat was offered in the shamble markets or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to devils or demons. Those temples that are to Zeus or to Diana or to Ashtarte or to Apollos or to Atlas or whatever deity they would worship in Corinth according to their respective personalities. What was behind that or the spirit that was behind that temple was demonic. It was a deceptive spirit, what Paul called a lying spirit. And he's saying there's a demonic element. In what's being offered to that meat the meat is nothing but the spirit behind what's taking place in the temple is demonic Paul says he says they're sacrificing it to demons and not to God and I would not that you should have fellowship with devils in other words what Paul is saying is this he's saying that the meat that you would purchase in the shamble market is nothing more than meat but what's behind the offering of that meat is the demonic entity And thus to buy the meat and eat the meat is nothing. There's no problem with that at all. But if it crosses the line and it's no longer gray where you're just simply buying meat at a discounted rate, but you find yourself drawn to what's taking place within the temple or the atmosphere of the restaurant where that meat is cooked is something that means something to you. And it begins to grab a hold of the strings of your soul. At that point, gray has now become black. And he says, therefore, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The Gentiles sacrificed to demons. We sacrifice to the Lord. One is light, one is darkness. One is truth, one is a lie. One brings life, and the other is nothing but death. Paul would write in another place, and he would say, what fellowship does light have with darkness? There is no fellowship between the two things. And what he's saying is this, is that if your participation in gray area behavior leads you to cross the line into an affection or an affinity for demonic things, then you are in compromise. You've compromised your relationship with Jesus Christ at that point. And what he's saying to them essentially is this. He's saying if your behavior on the outside abides in the gray, meaning that people can look at your life and they can say, why are they doing that? Why are they smoking that? Why are they drinking that? Smoking, let me qualify that. Smoking that cigarette. (laughs) You have to do that these days, don't you? Why are they doing that? Why are they spending their money that way? And they can judge, and we are judged. People judge us all the time for the things that we do. But if under the surface of all of that, our colors in our heart are not gray, but they're black and white. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And we're doing what we're doing to please the Lord. He's saying as long as the colors in our heart are right, then what we're doing on the outside doesn't matter. But if in our heart, things have gone gray and there's now compromise and we've turned towards those idols, then at that point, we've crossed into sin. The issue that we face as Christians is not to see how much we can get away with and still be saved. But rather, the desire of our heart must always be, Lord, is what I'm doing in this pleasing to you, or is it not? Compromise is such a dangerous thing. Last night, I was talking to my kids, and we were um, looking at a passage in Exodus where the Pharaoh was interacting with Moses, and Pharaoh offered Moses a compromise. Moses said, let us go and worship all of us. And Pharaoh said, I'll tell you what, you can go the men and you can worship, but leave the women and children here. And Moses said, "No deal." God said, "Everyone." He said, "Fine. Then you take the women and the children with you, but you leave the livestock." And Moses said, "No deal." God said, "Everything." And who knows what the Lord's going to ask us to offer? Therefore, all must be with us. And what the Pharaoh was seeking to get Moses to do was not to disobey God completely, but just to compromise. Don't obey him fully. Go halfway, but that's it. But by leaving anything in the Pharaoh's possession, it would absolutely ensure that the Israelites would return to Egypt and Pharaoh would lose no control. And so compromise was okay with Pharaoh because he knew that he would still remain having control over the Israelites. And the desire of Satan, our very real adversary, is to just get us to compromise a little bit in our devotion to God. And if he can do that, then he'll let us do whatever we want on the other side of that compromise. We can give 99% of our lives to God, but if he can get us to just leave one part with him, he knows that ultimately he'll maintain total control of all because we'll be back. There's a story of a man who sold a house and he sold it for so cheap that a man came and said, why is the sale, the price of this house so cheap? He said, ah, oh, because there's one condition. He said, I'm going to give this house away, all of it, but I want to maintain ownership over one nail that exists right here in the closet. You can have the whole house, but I keep that nail in its location. And the man said, I'll do it. What are you going to do with a nail? You can have the whole closet. I don't care. And he said, for that price, I'll do it. And he signed on the dotted line. He paid the money. And on closing day, the former owner of the house went in and he hung a corpse from that nail. And he said, you can't touch it. It's mine. That's my nail and my corpse. So the man shut the door and it lasted for a few days, but then the smell of that corpse began to permeate outside the door. And so he insulated it and tucked things under and thought it'll go away eventually, but it spread throughout the house. And after a while, he couldn't control the breakdown of the fluids. And so the house became infected and people in the house began to become sick and no one could come near it because of the smell of that corpse until the point where the man said, no deal, it's over, you can have the house back. But of course he didn't get his money back for the house. And so the former owner moved back in, cleaned it up, kept the house and the money. It's a great illustration of what compromise does within our life. If there's one area where we say, God, I'm not going to consecrate this to you, then eventually that will give Satan a toehold that will become a foothold, that will become a stronghold, and it will bring us down entirely. Paul says you cannot have fellowship with God and demons. It's an inconsistency. They are light and darkness. Our whole life must be consecrated to God. My prayer, one of my prayers on a daily basis is God, I want you to have my whole heart. I want. I, I don't know my own heart. I can't see into it. You see every room, every drawer, every cupboard, every cranny. You see the dust in the corners. You, you see things I don't know are there. My desire, Lord, is that you would have the whole thing. And in your time and in your way, Lord, move into all of it. Take it all. And it's the wise person that can look at God and say, God, I trust you enough to run my life completely. Compromise is a dangerous thing. And so don't compromise singular devotion to God. About 10 years ago, um, my mother gifted me. My birthday and Christmas kind of fall right close to each other. And she gifted me a gym membership. And I was extremely grateful for that and uh, started going before work in the morning. And at first it was just like, you know, great, I've got the time and this is a great activity. But I got into it. And a gray area of, you know, should a Christian spend his time in the gym? And certainly no no problem with that uh, at all. um, Moved eventually and subtly into more than that. You know, where it became, I don't want to say an obsession because you know, I was still a born again Christian and Jesus was still Lord of my life. But it certainly did cross the line in, in some ways to what you could call atlas worship. You know, where I couldn't miss a workout. I couldn't now it's 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 no longer, you know, just something to do, but it was it was it had a hold. There was a stronghold in it. You know, and and, and thank God, you know, it's just a small thing. And God's able to make those adjustments and change us and do things to get us on the right track again. But there's a danger of a gray area becoming more than just a gray area. And Paul would warn us and say, is it uh, causing compromise within your life? The next gray area that he gives to us is in uh, verse 23. And that is that we are to make a distinction in our own lives between what is allowable and what is beneficial. Notice what he says in verse 23. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or profitable, necessary. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And so what the Apostle Paul would do in his own life is that he would take the things that uh, would come across his opportunity and he would um, make a list and he would say, okay, these things are all allowable. And he had a whole list of things that were allowable for him to do as a Christian uh, in his life. But then he had a second column where he would say, are these things beneficial to me? And if something in his life couldn't match the criteria of being both allowable and beneficial, then his attitude towards that something is that it was not worth his time. It's it's allowable, I can do it, but it adds absolutely nothing to me, and so it's out. I'm not going to do it within my life. When uh, Georgia and I first got married, there was um, a a freshness, there still is a freshness uh, to our relationship with the Lord. We were both relatively new Newly saved, we had just uh, been really turned on to the Word of God and to the Bible, and, and God was doing something in us. There was a calling that was being cultivated that we didn't even really uh, realize yet, but we were, um, we were growing. We were growing very quickly, and, and, and we were learning very quickly. And one of the um, kind of normal uh, behaviors in the church that we were going to at that time is that we, nobody really drank alcohol. They're just, it just wasn't something that people did. And because that's where we were, that was a part of our life. And so we went through our whole first year of marriage, and, and it was never something that we did. We just never drank alcohol. Then on our first anniversary, um, we went out for dinner, and uh, we went to the macaroni grill in Henrietta, New York. And um, it was New Year's Eve, which is our anniversary. And so uh, there was a great crowd of people, and we had to wait to be seated at the table. And so we're sitting in the lounge, and we ordered an, uh, a coffee drink, with it had a shot of Kahlua in it, and we shared it between the two of ourselves. And so here it is. It's our anniversary. It's New Year's Eve. It's a blessed time. We've been married for God's doing incredible things within our life. And we sat at a table waiting for our number to be called, and we shared a few sips of of that uh coffee drink that had a shot of Kahlua in it. And something happened when we did that. Um, Just taking a few sips, we both noticed that the entire demeanor of the evening just kind of turned upside down. Like what had just been like this really uh, fun, like, you know, we were together type of thing. It just, it's like a cloud, like, like, like you're a sunny day and the cloud just kind of roll in. And all of a sudden, like the atmosphere just kind of changes. And, and, you know, we went through the dinner and we had a great time, but both of us had this sense like we just put a dent in a brand new Mercedes. Like that was just the feeling of it. Now we did nothing wrong. There was not one element of sin in ordering that drink. We were both over 21, you know. it, it certainly uh, the few sips that we had didn't cause any kind of um, mind-altering reaction in our bodies. It was just something there where the Lord said, not for you. It was that simple. There was a calling that was being cultivated and something that would, you know, that, that, that he saw that was beyond our vanishing point that we couldn't see at that time in our lives. And he just said, not for you. And that was it. And neither of us have, and I'm not saying this so you, whoa, he's righteous, you know, the whole, the whole idea. I'm a pastor. I hope you expect that of me, that I'm not drinking alcohol. But ever since that time, we have not done that because of that conviction. Allowable? Yes profitable? No. And so it hasn't been a part of our life. And can I tell you, it's been a huge blessing that that's never even been a thought, never a temptation, never even, you know, is it something that we're going to do or something that we can be snared by? Does it match the criteria allowable and beneficial? Now, the temptation that comes when God builds a conviction like that into your life is that you can begin to think that that's the way God wants us every one of his children to operate. And that's not necessarily true. And That was a whole, another lesson that I had to learn a little bit later on, that just because that's the way that God was dealing with me doesn't mean that that's the way God deals with everyone and that that's the will of God. Do you see how gray areas work? What is okay for one may not be for another. Sometimes the things that are in our life that we would put in those lists you know, when we think it through and we say, okay, allowable and profitable. Sometimes there can be some pretty major things on those lists. I mean, you just go through and you just begin to think about all the things that you do with your uh, free time and what you give yourself to, and you put those things on the list. You think about for one minute just uh, the movies that you watch or the television that you watch. You begin to weigh it out in that criteria, and you just begin to say, allowable? Absolutely. And then you begin to think through, is it profitable? And what happens is if you're like me, you come to this dilemma where you say there, there's, there's no, if I'm honest, there's no profit in this, but that's such a large part of life in in, in this world and in this country, then how in the world would I give that up or why would I give that up? Is that, you know, I mean, Paul, you're saying if it's not profitable, then throw it, I mean, How does that, why would I do that? What's the deal? I don't have an answer for you. I know you're waiting for like the silver bullet that's gonna, I I don't have it. But here's what I can tell you. And I can tell you this uh, by experience is that there is nothing in our lives that we will ever give up to God that he will not fill the space that that something took within our life and do something with it that's so incredibly beneficial to us that we would look back with regret on what we gave up. That's absolutely true in every area of our life. I was reading Proverbs 31 the other day. And, um, you know, if you know what Proverbs 31 is, you're thinking to yourself, why in the world were you reading Proverbs 31? Because it's, the, it's really the scripture that goes through uh, what a virtuous wife is or a virtuous woman. It doesn't say virtuous wife. It says a virtuous woman. And as I was reading it, I wasn't reading it from the context of trying to figure out what a virtuous woman is. I was reading it because I am the virtuous woman, because I'm the bride of Christ, right? And, and, and that makes every single one of us in this room the bride of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we look at that passage of Scripture, it doesn't just apply to a woman. It applies to every single one of us. And what is it in our lives that pleases the Lord? And I came to verse 16 and I stopped there because I started to think about it. God grabbed a hold of me in that verse. And it says this, it says that she considers a field and then she buys it. And then she plants a vineyard with her hands. And I thought, Lord, what in the world does that look like? Because I I really don't think you're into real estate. Why, what does it mean? And he began to just kind of, you know, bring scripture to mind. And the the vineyard or the field is always a picture of our heart in the Bible. It talks about the soil. Jesus referenced it in Matthew chapter 13 about the four different types of soil and the seed and the um, plants and the vines and and whatnot. It all speaks of the work of Christ within our heart. And, And God began to just minister to my heart about what he would do in my life if I would just buy more of the field for him. In other words, areas of my heart that aren't his, areas of my life that, you know, like something like, you know, the TV that I watch or the amount of social media that I I give myself to or, you know, those things that make us kind of get uncomfortable sitting in a service and hearing us start to talk about things that are a big part of our life. But What if we said, God, what would you do with that area of my life, if I completely surrendered it to you? What would you fill it with? What would grow on that ground? I can tell you this. I don't know the answer completely, but I know that in my life, every single time I've given him permission to take ownership of a part of my heart, I have never said, I wish I had that back. And that's always true in the life of a Christian. Anything that we give to him, no matter how big or small, He will take it and make it better than what we would do with that space or with that time. The third thing that he gives us in terms of guidelines in the gray areas is in verse 24. And that is to consider the effect that what we're doing has on someone else's faith. He says, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. It's a tremendous thing that we have as Christians in that we have the power to either slow others down in their growth and progress in the things of God. And we also have the power to speed them up and encourage them on further through the things that we do. Every one of us influences someone. There's not a single one of us in this room that is not being watched. And especially if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're being watched. And you're being watched on levels that you don't even realize. You're being watched by the church and you're being watched by the world. Because what the church is looking for is do you know Christ in a way that I don't know Christ? Or do you even know Christ? And the world is looking at your life and saying, does what you profess to believe really work? And our behavior, even in the things that we think don't really matter or aren't really all that important, have the power to either influence someone further on in the things of God or to give them an excuse or to just slow them down to a place where they become apathetic towards the things of God. And that's a tremendous power that God has given us in in our lives, every one of us. And just to think, I think that's why it's so important that Christians pray together. You pray with Christians, pray with other people, because there's something that happens when you hear the prayer of another Christian. And you hear the way they pray and talk to God, and it stirs something within you, and you say, I want to know God like they know God. I want to have the kind of conversation and the kind of prayer life and connection to him that they do. It stirs you on. When you see someone that has convictions, things in their life that they don't allow that they could and justify, but they don't, it causes you to look at their life and say, why don't they do that? Or why do they do that? Why do they go to church more than once a week? Even though you you don't have to do that. Why would you do that? And it causes them to consider and stop and think. And the things that we do have an effect upon the people that are watching our lives. And Paul took that into consideration as it related to the gray areas. People are watching, and I have the power through my actions to either bring them forward or to slow them down. God anoints our words when we speak, but he anoints our actions when people watch. And sometimes the simplest abstaining or the simplest doing of something that we don't have to do can do something in someone's life that we won't find out until heaven had a tremendous impact upon them. The fourth thing that Paul says is a guideline for himself is in verse 25 and it goes through verse 27. And that is that he himself would keep himself simple concerning things that were evil. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, whatsoever is sold in the shambles <clears throat> he says that eat asking no question for conscious sake for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof if you want to buy meat that's sold in the shambles he says go for it it's all belongs to God I think it's in Psalm 51 or no it's not 51 I know that Psalm that's an important one it's maybe it's 61 it's somewhere right around there that David writes and he says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And that if he were hungry, he wouldn't even tell us. He owns it all. It's all his. It all belongs to him. So if someone's stupid enough to sell meat for that cheap, then go buy it and enjoy it. He says, if if you want that meat, go eat it and don't ask any questions for your conscience sake. It's all God's. He says, if any of them that believe not, you go to dinner at the house of an unbeliever and they bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat it asking no question for conscience sake. In other words, be simple concerning evil. You don't have to overturn every rock and try to investigate and see if there's evil behind what it is that you're doing or where it is that you're going. I used to do construction down in Manhattan, and I would never ask the question, what is this building gonna be used for? You know, what are they going to do in this bar that we're building here, (laughs) you know, or this nightclub, or what are these lights going to be used for? We never ask those types of questions. If we began to do that, then we would never do anything in our lives. I like to buy tools on Craigslist. I find that it's an incredible way to find uh, new or gently used tools, high quality tools at a very, very discounted rate. And I've scored some incredible deals on Craigslist buying tools. But I've never once asked the question, where did this come from? Because if I did, it would just, I mean, I don't want to know. I mean, you're selling a tool. I'm taking you at face value. You're not using it. It was a gift that you're not going to use. I'm in. I'll buy it. 50 bucks. It's yours. I'll buy the tool, you know. If you begin to prod and probe about what's behind everything that you do, you'll never do anything. Paul says, be simple. Romans chapter 16, verse 19 The second half of the verse, Paul says, I would have you to be wise concerning that which is good and very simple concerning what is evil. So he says, don't ask questions for conscience sake. Just move through this life gracefully and navigate these things with a clear conscience. But, but, and then he goes on and he gives us now uh, the fifth uh, guideline in this. And the fifth guideline in verse 28 is that God's ways and reputation must still supersede my freedom. Notice, he says, but if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, then eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You're still living for God's glory. Conscience, I say, not your own, but of the other, for why is my liberty or freedom judged by another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, then why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? He's saying that, he he said, I I could still eat it. He's saying, but I'm not gonna eat that meat because now God's reputation is on the line. They have just, in a sense, stuck it to me saying, this meat was offered in, in sacrifice to an idol. Are you gonna eat it? And they're gonna see what I'm gonna do. And Paul says, I'm still free to eat that meat if I want, but if I do it, then I'm going to justify the conscience of this idolater, and he's going to feel justified in his idolatry. Paul says, for that cause, I will not eat it. I remember there was a time I was on a job, um, this goes back several years, I worked for a small um, residential remodeling company, and um, there there was basically four of us that had kind of been together. There was three owners and me. And if you can ever get into a situation where there's three owners and then you do it, Okay, Because the only person that gets paid on a regular basis in that situation is the you. Because you, it's not your business, right? And so uh, a great, great group of guys that I worked with. One of them ended up getting saved eventually, uh, but not the other two. But there was a day, a few years into this uh, thing, and I had a rapport with these guys that the, that uh, a couple of the guys went to Home Depot for some material. And when they came back from Home Depot, they were unloading the cart. And one of the owners of the company threw a uh, um, uh, a case of brand new router bits uh, out on, on the grass, and he said, and some free router bits. And the other guy said, what do you mean free router bits? And he said, oh, well, we put them in the cart, and we put them underneath the sheetrock, and the, they, didn't, um, they didn't see them, and so they were free. And I got down off the ladder that I was on, and I, and I called over the other guy, and I said, if, if we keep those router bits, this is my last day on this job right now because i don 't want to work i don 't want to work for a company that 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 operates with those kind of ethics if that 's the way that we have to do business then i don't want to be a part of this and and then you know Dennis, who's the guy who ultimately got saved he he was there with me he was the older mature one and he he agreed and he sat everybody down and said this isn 't going to happen you know and, and that 's the same kind of idea of what Paul is saying here he's saying listen it, you know if, if they if, if whatever there's no um uh mention of anything be simple concerning evil but if you're told what's going on then you make a stand for god's reputation and and make a stand for righteousness it's an important thing uh that we're called to do And, and so paul says it number six is given to us in verse 31 and number six is in this checklist concerning navigating the gray areas is that whatever you do do everything to the glory of God. Notice in verse 31, he says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. The word glory there uh, simply means to honor God or to seek God's honor or um, that God would be honored in what it is that you're doing. And the picture is kind of uh, as though you could see God, and he's king, and he's seated upon the throne, and in his right hand, he has the scepter. And uh, you're coming before him, and you're seeking his approval for something. And so you're going to give to God your case, and you're going to ask him what it is that you're going to do, and what you're seeking is you're seeking that he would raise the scepter to you. That's what it means that, that he honors that behavior. That he looks at what you're asking him or what you're seeking to do, and he says, I give my approval to that. And what Paul is saying to them, essentially, is that the way that I navigate through these things when I don't know what it is that I'm going to do, I bring it to God and I seek that he would put his blessing upon it, that he could honor it. And that's a great question to ask yourself when you're when you're considering a decision that you're going to make in your life, uh, the, the the incredible myriad of, of gray things that we deal with on a daily basis. God Will you raise the scepter to this? If I do this, if I partake of this, if I allow this into my life, if I allow this into my relationship, if I allow this into my behavior, is this honoring to you? Does it bring you glory? And does he raise the scepter to that? Or does he look at you and say, try again? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and he doesn't. And that's a great thing. Do we bring the things in our lives before the Lord and say, God, is this acceptable to you? And uh, do we gain your approval in it? Um, you know, I think that in this right here, there's a real blessing in our Christian walk and in our relationship with God. Because I have experienced it, and I, maybe you have too, wherein um, God doesn't necessarily raise the scepter right away on something. And so I'll bring him something, and I'll begin to just say, God, this is uh, something that I, I'm asking you for, or a prayer. And I'm just looking at him, and he's kind of looking at me, as it were, you know. And I'm, I don't get this idea that I have this thing that you don't have. We all have a relationship with God, you, same thing, you know. But this is all in prayer, and I'll just wait. And there's really no answer, and uh, it's almost as if God just says, I, I don't know if that's my will right now, and He's being gracious to me. And I'll go on, and I'll say. Lord, I want to do this, or I want want you to raise the scepter to this. And I've experienced it that sometimes he'll say, he'll give me a reason that implies the negative. But the reason why he's doing that is because he wants me to argue a little bit. And we've crossed now from prayer into what the Bible calls supplication. And all of a sudden now I find myself, God says, well, why do you want that? Nick and now it balls back in my court again and I got to present my case I'm supplicating I'm giving my petitions my reasoning and I begin to wax scriptural on God at this point point. and I say, well God you said that whatsoever things you ask in prayer believing you'll receive those things that you ask for but Nick what you're asking for is a little bit selfish isn't it yes Lord it is but you said didn't you that you have given us richly all things to enjoy and lord the way you've wired me this is important and he'll say yeah but who do you think you are first of all talking to me this way and putting yourself at a place where you think that i should do this for you what do you think you're david and i'll say no lord i don't think i'm david and i know i'm not david and i'll never be david But I do know that David was justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the same way that I am, and that it wasn't of works, lest he should boast and I can't boast. And since Jesus Christ is the level playing field for both David and myself, then it makes me a candidate to pray the prayers of David. And then God raises the scepter. Why did God do that? Do you know why? Because he wants relationships. And the same reason why we don't have our kids come to us with DMV forms asking us for the things that they ask for and put in their application and wait for their approval and then for resources to be distributed. But they ask us a question and we converse with them because we love them and we want to interact with them. We say, why? Why should I? What are you going to give me? What are you going to do? And sometimes we drive them crazy, make them jump through hoops, And the only reason we're doing it is because we love them and we want to relate to them. But all the while, we intended to do for them the thing that they asked. The answer was yes before they even asked. But God wants relationship. And so it's important that in every area of our lives, we bring things to him and we say, God, do I have your approval and your blessing in this? That if I go down this road or if I allow this in my life, will it turn to future blessing? Are you in it? Are you not? And in that, there's incredible arena and potential for growth. And God would have that for every one of us. The final thing that Paul gives to us in terms of navigating the gray areas is in verse 32. And that is, he says, be careful that you don't give anyone an excuse to discredit the message that you're bringing. He says in verse 32, give no offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. Now that includes everyone in the world. Everyone in the world falls under one of those three banners. You're either a Jew, part of God's old covenant people. You're either a Gentile, which is everybody else that doesn't know God. Or you're a part of the church, which is Jew and Gentile that have been blood-bought and that are redeemed by Christ and are a part of the church now. And so he's saying that give no offense in anything that you do. Be careful that you're not giving anyone Saved or unsaved, a reason to blaspheme the message or the doctrine of God. And then Paul um, uses himself as an example in closing out in verse 33. He says, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they should be saved. And what he's saying essentially here is that the effect of our behavior on other people's lives is more important than our indulgence or enjoyment of the things that we're seeking to uh, do or have for us. As we close, the conclusion of the matter in this gray area subject that we now leave as we uh, will next week cross into chapter 11 is that the goal of the Christian life is not to operate in the gray as much as possible and experience as much of the world as we can and still be saved. That's not the goal of the Christian life. God, what can I get away with and still be called a Christian? It's not, that's not where success and blessing and fruitfulness is going to be found within our lives. If that's the way that we live, then the result is almost always going to be a marred testimony, a tarnishing of God's reputation, and a wasted life. It's a life that's constantly dousing water on a fire that God is trying to start and ignite within us. So what is the purpose of the Christian life? The purpose of the Christian life on earth is that we might know Him, and that we might enjoy Him, that we might walk with Him, that we would experience His nearness and His pleasure over our lives, that we would have His blessing and His, his favor over us, that we would bear good fruit and that we would experience His work in our lives and through our lives that we would increasingly hear His voice and have deep and constant communion with Him and that we would be continually being made free from the old life and the things that used to hold us unto a more fruitful and productive life for Him. That's the goal of the Christian life. That's what God wants. And the gray areas are intended to bring us there rather than to justify things that would please ourselves. You might think that in a city like Corinth, there's absolutely no chance that this is going to work. I mean, they were faced with absolutely every temptation and, and carnal pleasure allowable that was known to man. And, and you think this is never going to work. This church is never going to be able to navigate through these gray areas. Uh, in this. so I want you to think about something for just a minute. There are two reasons why a person would ask about the gray areas because that's what they did. They asked about the gray areas. It's either because, number one, they're seeking to justify something that they're uneasy about, or, number two, they have a sincere desire to please God and do what's right. It's one or the other. And you know how you find out which one it is? Just watch and see what happens in their life. And you'll find out which one it was. And you know what was proven by time in the Corinthian church? Is that the reason why they asked the question is because they had a sincere desire to please God and do what was best for their own lives and for His glory. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians, what you find is that this carnal, messed up church that had to be corrected on so many things had gotten themselves on the right side of every single issue that they had to be addressed about. 2 Corinthians is one of the most fruitful, well, not what's the word I'm looking for? It's written to one of the most mature group of Christians that exists in all of the New Testament. The tone, the content, the substance of 2 Corinthians is so vastly different from that of 1 Corinthians because they got it. They grew through these things and they came to a point where Paul could talk to them about the deeper things, the richer things of the Christian life. They did it. They heeded it. And so what about for you and I? You and I live in a culture, a society, much like that of Corinth. And the gray areas in our life are going to make or break us. And what they're going to reveal is whether or not we have a sincere desire to really please God and do His will, or whether or not we just want to know what we can get away with and then live as close to that line as we possibly can. And the proof of that is going to be shown 10 years from now. Or 20 years from now. Or maybe when you stand before Jesus himself and he looks over our life and it's played out before him. And we see what our lives actually accomplished for his sake. May God give us the wisdom as we navigate these things daily to seek him, to walk close with him, to hear his voice on things. And that we find ourselves with a set of convictions that aren't birthed from watching someone else or from listing do's and don'ts, but because God has raised the scepter in our life for the things that he has for us. And the result of those things is fruit and peace. And so Paul gives to us a checklist, navigating through the gray areas. Does this compromise my devotion to God? Number one. Will this stumble a brother or a sister? Number two. Is this profitable and allowable? Number three. Can I do this in the simplicity of a good conscience? Number four. Does this in any way tarnish God's reputation? Number five. Is this God honoring? Would he raise the scepter to it? Number six. And does this make room for an unbeliever or a Christian to blaspheme the truth of the doctrine of God? Number seven. May God give us wisdom. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text of scripture that Uh, just gives us so much insight and so much help in the daily things that we encounter and the decisions that we make. Father, we need your Holy Spirit in ever-increasing measure in the days that we live in. You said that he would give light to our path. You said that he would illuminate the scripture and cause it to make sense for us. You said, Lord, that you would be our guide upon the narrow way. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that we would find ourselves in a place, Lord, where we're productive and fruitful and effective for you. So help us, Lord, as your people. For we know that the world is watching. We know that the church is watching. And we so desire, Lord, that we'd hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. So bring us there, Lord, that every one of us could look back a year from now or two years from now or even a week from now and say that we've grown, that God has done things in our life that more of the field, more of the heart is consecrated to him. So may it be done, Lord, according to your will. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.